good to see you all again. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Matt. I'm on staff here with the Christian Union. Uh, and I'll be taking us through the passage that Chester just read for us, um, which is an interesting passage and exciting one. And I hope it encourages and challenges you today. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Richard Chin is the National Director of the Australian Fellowship of Evangelical Students. He's sort of like the boss of our boss here at, at the CU. So it's lots of bosses up and he's up at the top there. He came and gave a talk on Tuesday. Uh, because he was in town and we wanted to give him that honour and privilege so that some of you could get to know him. Uh, but what that means is that the preaching schedule is sort of a bit kind of funky, which means Thursday today is a free hit. So I, I, had, I had a whole bunch of choices before me. We could have continued and done an extra special one on Deuteronomy. We, we could have gone into the Psalms and a number of Psalms. Um, I had an old uh, sermon on adultery. Uh, and that could have been interesting, and, and I, I really ummed an art about that one, so I thought that might be interesting to kind of get us thinking about things of sexual purity, particularly in your age. But in the end, despite all the interesting options that I had on the table, I, I couldn't help but return back to the book of Acts. Uh, and that's because I think the book of Acts, more than any other book uh, in the Bible, captures something of the drama of salvation that we as Christians have been caught up in. Because if you didn't know, we are involved in the greatest and the longest and the most successful campaign the history of the world has ever seen. Now you hear lots about Coke's advertising and how they've reached 99% of the world, even people in deepest, darkest Africa, or tribesmen, that sort of stuff. But this is bigger. It's bigger than that. It has spanned millennia, it has transcended cultures, it has overturned empires, and most importantly, throughout the years, it has claimed millions upon millions of the souls of people. It has never stopped, it will never fail, and it will march through history until God draws that line through history and says there's no more history through which to march. And if there's anything that we want you to capture at your time at the Christian Union, it's this. It's a vision and an understanding and an appreciation that your life is not your own. But instead, having been saved by God, you are now called to join the campaign that proclaims that salvation and announces it to the rest of the world. You are part of the biggest, most enduring campaign of human history. What has happened is that 2,000 years ago, God appointed the man, Jesus Christ, as the world's saviour, as the world's king, and as the world's judge. And his intention is to make that known, not just amongst his people, Israel, but throughout the world, to the very ends of the world. And so in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, verse 8, it's a very key verse in chapter 1, we see that the word goes out from Jerusalem to the surrounding area, Judea and Samaria, and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And the rest of the book of Acts sees that progression roll out. And the thing to get about the book of Acts is we had to watch the word. The word is the main character of the book of Acts. It's kind of weird. Normally a main character is a person, but in this case it's an entity, it's a message. And as the word spreads out from Jerusalem all the way through to the ends of the earth, every obstacle that word of salvation encounters, it overcomes. Governing authorities, no. Nah. Hard hearts, defeated. Racism, overcome. Disaster, ignored. Infighting, we work through it. Persecution, resisted, beaten, defeated. And of all those obstacles, the one that I wanted to focus on today was persecution. 
persecution is a, a big thing, I think, in the world of Christianity, uh, increasingly so in Christian circles here in Australia. And one of the things I've been reflecting on is, as we think as a staff team about how we can help you become better disciples of Jesus, such that when you leave university, you can be well equipped to take that gospel to the world. One of the things we've realized is that we need to spend more time than we used to spend on being prepared to face and experience persecution for believing the message of the gospel. So we need to be prepared that that's the case. Now, I was um, um, reading uh, a newsletter recently from Open Doors. They look after persecuted Christians around the world. Uh, and one of the stories that came out was actually quite alarming to me. It's kind of personally quite confronting. There's a, there's a pastor, I think, in the 1020 window, so mostly in the Islamic world. Um, don't know which country he was in. And he would secretly visit people. And his daughter was at school. They found out she was a Christian. They beat her. They threw her out of the school. And they threatened that if she continued to continue to believe in Christ that they would throw acid on her. Um, that's terrifying. I, I've just had my second daughter, and I can't think but think, what is going on in the pastor's head as his daughter endures that? Is the gospel worth it? What enables him to stay true to Jesus and yet play with that kind of risk? Now, in today's passage, the passage that we just had read for us, we see in the very first verse, violence and murder. These were the things that confronted the early church. Uh, and I think it's kind of par for the course. Usually when we kind of preach uh, or hear a, a sermon on this particular kind of passage, we say, well, there was persecution, but we obviously don't experience as much of it in Australia. And we kind of try and tone it down. But, but it occurs to me as I think about it, that that's completely the wrong way to address this particular topic. Because one of the things we do at the CU is we try to impress upon you that your life is not your own and that the call of the gospel compels you to take that gospel wherever you go and deliver it to the people who desperately need to hear it. And part of that challenge is to say to some of you, maybe you should think about giving away your jobs and actually heading overseas to places where acid is a problem and actually proclaim the gospel in a place where persecution is that heated. And so what I want to think about today is what makes it worth it? What makes it helpful for us to, 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 to face it, to be prepared for it, not just to expect it, but to not fear it? To actually embrace the context where that might come because we have the glory of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ and the one thing, the great need that people have, the one thing that will address that need. Now, I can't do all of that. That's a lifetime of change as we read the scriptures and we're convinced that Jesus is of a more worth than anything else. But I will say that Acts chapter 12 has two things that we can add to our picture that hopefully will make us more bold and more glad and more confident and more willing in our proclamation. And those two things are simply this. It reminds us of the power of God and it reminds us of our place in the story of salvation. And it tells us how we get both of those things wrong. And I think once we start thinking right about those two things, the power of God and our place in the story of salvation, then we'll be in a much better position to gladly join God's campaign of gospel proclamation. So let's have a look at each one of those things in turn. First of all, let's have a look at the power of God and in particular the danger of, in the face of persecution, underestimating the power of God. Now, one of the things as we look at chapter 12 that, that is apparent but not very clear is that it's actually about a power struggle between two kings. Now, on the one hand, one of the kings is very obvious. He's called Herod. We've got an explicit introduction to him in verse 1. Uh, we're introduced to him as King Herod, uh, and man, he was a nasty piece of work. Now, for those of you who don't know, there's actually three generations of Herods in the Bible, just to make things really confusing. Like, who's this 200-year-old guy who keeps killing people? That's not actually what's happening here. You have Herod the Great. 
Herod Antipas and Herod Agrippa, and that's Herod the Agrippa the, the first. So that, that there's the multiple Herods. Herods everywhere. Um, if you remember, you, maybe you don't. There's a famous boxer in America called George Foreman. Five kids named them all George. One of them was a girl. Concerning, not sure what's happening, but it's that same sort of kind of self-centered grandeur uh, as we saw. We'll see later on in the passage. And so here's Herod, Herod the Great, Antipas, Agrippa to locate them. Herod the Great is the one who tried to murder Jesus as a baby. Herod Antipas is the guy who beheaded John the Baptist kind of 30 years on, and he was the one involved in the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. And then we have Herod Agrippa, and he's the Herod of Acts, and that's in chapter 12 today. And so just like his father and his grandfather, this guy was bloodthirsty and power hungry. There's your first king. The second king is harder to spot, but he's very obviously there. We see him referred to in verse 11 as the Lord. Now, no points for guessing who that is at the Christian Union. We're talking about the King Jesus. And so what we have here is a competition, if you will, a clash of two kings. One seeking to oppose the word that the apostles preach, and the other one silently, almost seemingly in the background, upholding it. And as we read the narrative, what I want you to see is the way that Luke tells it. He, he tells it and shows us that the deck is stacked against Jesus. So we start in verse 1 and we see that Herod, um, he, he arrests some who belong to the church and he intends to persecute them, literally lay hands upon them to do them violence. Uh, we see straight after he puts James, the apostle, to the sword. Now remember, this is an apostle. You can't replace those things. And so this is a major blow to the church. And then he finds another apostle, Peter, and he arrests him and he imprisons him. And then we see in verse 4 that he intends there to bring him out at the Passover. Now, we're not told what he's intending at that point, uh, but given that he's just uh, sorted James, I think it's incredibly likely that he plans to publicly execute him during the heart of the festival so that he can please the Jews who he ruled. So we see at the very beginning, Herod has all the cards in his hand. He's in the position of ascendancy. And more than that, what we see is Peter, the apostle, the representative of King Jesus, placed in a position of weakness. So we see there in verse 4, he has four squads of soldiers guarding him. And rather than just be thrown into a cell, verse 6, he's chained not to one, but to two soldiers, one on either side. Talk about getting friendly. Now, they've got sentries at the door of the prison. Uh, and if you remember, even Houdini had phony locks to escape his prisons. And so this situation is pretty dire. I can't see anybody getting out of this. The stakes are raised. The deck is stacked. And then we see more stakes. Verse 6 again. It's the night before Herod is about to bring him out. So Peter has been in here for a couple of days. Uh, and all this time, verse 5, what we see there is that the church is earnestly praying and nothing is happening. Now, these are the last seconds of the timer and they're ticking down. And this isn't a James Bond movie, right? We're all used to that trope. Oh, yeah, cool. There's the timer. We know it's going to stop with one second to go. But that's not how real life works. The church would have been praying. The church would have been freaking out. Peter would have been sitting in the prison expecting the worst. Hope was about to disappear completely. So the deck, it's stacked against Team Jesus. And that's what makes what happens next so miraculous. I just want to kind of get you into the headspace. Don't let familiarity with miracles, because we're reading the Bible all the time, blunt just how incredible this is. The angel of the Lord wakes him up. The chains fall off his hands, and he walks past the first and then the second guard, and then he approaches, you notice the heavy iron gate into which the city uh, is closed at the night, and it, it opens like an automatic door at a shopping centre. 
every single layer of security, which you know considered back then was the impossibility of escape, it just falls away like dust blowing away in the wind. Before the Lord, it's as nothing. Now, when Peter realizes what's going on, this is what he says in verse 12. Um, uh, is it verse 11? Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And it's at that point that you see the match is over. The clash of kings has finished. Jesus has won. But the thing that I want us to notice as we look at that is that this victory was unexpected. Not just by Herod, he was probably sleeping pretty tightly and soundly at night, but also by Peter and the church. You see, Peter in verse 9 thinks his whole thing is a vision. Verse 11, he finally comes to himself. He says, now I'm sure, now I truly know. I suddenly realize. That's the sort of thing that's coming on here. It's like the lights suddenly go on. And then Luke repeats the thing in the very next verse. That when it had dawned on him, so this is not expected, despite the prayer, despite the knowledge of a God who can raise the dead. And he goes to the believers where they're still praying for him. The servant girl comes. She's so excited when she finds out she leaves him at the door, just leaves him outside. And she runs back. And the response of the prayerful Christians is to say, you're crazy. Or, okay, maybe there's something to it. But obviously it's just a messenger from Peter. That's what the angel word means. It could mean actual angel. It could mean messenger. And so it hasn't even occurred to them in their own minds that there's a possibility that God has miraculously released him from prison. Even though back in Acts chapter 5, that's exactly what has happened to him already, right? So there's even historical precedent within living memory, and yet they doubted that that would happen. And I think, therefore, that the first lesson for us today, I think it's clear, do we actually think that God is able, let alone willing, to miraculously intervene in the lives of his people? Obviously, the Bible doesn't promise that it'll happen at all times, but we need to remember that the God that we're dealing with, the God who will see his message go to the ends of the earth, that will overcome every obstacle. We're not just praying to a God who's, oh, maybe, but actually to a God who is able to do all of those things. And so when we pray, are we praying with the expectation that God will do what we ask? Not that he will release necessarily people from prison miraculously, but that people will be released from prison. That people will actually want to sit down and read the Bible with us. That people will become Christians. One commentator said that we must conclude that they were surprised by the nature and the timing of God's response. They were discovering that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask and imagine. He's quoting there from Ephesians 3. And what I want this to be for us today is not a rebuke, but an encouragement. How big is your God? Because however big you think he is, however, whatever the limits are that you've placed on him, he's bigger. He transcends those limits. And I think in particular, in the face of persecution, it is easy to shrink our God. But no matter how hard it gets for us, we need to remember the sheer magnitude of God's power. We see it illustrated for us here in the life of Peter. The strongest chains could not constrain him. The mightiest of human authorities were powerless before him. And this is the God. This is our God who answers the prayers of us his church. And so let me ask you just in passing before we move on to the next point, are you praying? Are you praying that the word will continue? Are you praying that the word will take root in the lives of those around you? Because if this passage tells us anything, it's that God answers and far more extravagantly than we could ever suppose. God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. 
So where I want to kind of get this traction for us is thinking about Mark Uncovered. It's the way that we try to encourage you to evangelise on campus. It's not the only way, but we're convinced that it's the simplest, easiest way and the way that you can map onto your lives beyond university. The stories that I've heard of people who are actually reading the Bible with somebody who isn't yet a Christian and actually exploring the claims of Jesus, the ones that have actually managed to find that relationship, they're the ones that have prayed for it. So when I first started my first year out of college and I was with AFS in Sydney, uh, there was a girl called Chloe and she just sat down and decided over a course of many days that she'd keep praying that she'd find somebody to read Mark Uncover with. Now obviously that prompted her to ask people and that sort of stuff, but it happened. I'm aware of a whole bunch of people here in the CU at UWA who have done the same thing, where they have prayed to God that they would find somebody to read the Bible with, and it's happened. Um, you got the on-campus, you came into the door, this, this thing here. There's some really cool stories in there about Mark Uncover, and one of them's from ZJ in second year, and she's going to direct quote for you. She's like, I thought, there's no way someone who isn't a Christian would want to do this. And yet she found somebody to do it, and it's been fruitful as she's preached the gospel to them. So the thing I just want to encourage us with is don't underestimate the power of God. If we willingly submit ourselves to the campaign that God has to save the world, he will do what we ask him to, especially as we seek to evangelize. So get excited. Get expectant. Nine out of ten people might say no, but we seek the one person who will, who can then hear the gospel and by the power of God be saved. So that's the first thing. In the face of persecution, don't underestimate the power of God. Second one. The second one is this. Don't overestimate your place in the story. Uh, in our context, uh, it's, it's really easy, I think, to kind of have this unspoken gospel pessimism. It kind of creeps into the Christian mind. It kind of tells us that evangelism is just really hard. It's exhausting. It's pointless. You spend time trying to ask people to meet with you and they say no. And then finally, when somebody does, you get all excited and they cancel on you. Or they kind of meet with you for a couple of weeks and that sort of thing. And then they hear about Jesus and like, yeah, not for me. And it just feels like you're just throwing yourself against the wall. And you conclude that the soil is too hard, that people are too comfortable. You forget our first point, that God isn't powerful. But, but the problem with that sort of thinking is that as soon as that attitude settles in our hearts... You stop thinking in terms of the Great Commission, of going and making disciples for Jesus, which is the CU's mission, right? Proclaiming Jesus to make um, everyone mature, present everyone mature in him. And instead of the Great Commission, we start thinking in terms of the Great Commiseration. And we look inwards and we're like, oh, if only people would listen, but it's a lost cause. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to focus on the internal aspects of Christianity. I'm going to make sure I'm at my church serving, growing in godliness. But I'm not going to really bother with that sort of evangelism stuff. And I want to say that that attitude could not be further from Luke's attitude in the book of Acts. It has an unwavering gospel optimism. And it's an optimism that I hope you've caught in your small groups last year if you were here when you did the book of Acts. Because this is where your boldness comes from. It's seeing the story of salvation and seeing the word increase and spread and overcome everything that comes across its path. So what gives your evangelism its keenness uh, in both sense of the word, the excitement as well as the sharpness. It's the biblical conviction that no matter what challenges you, when you preach the word, it will prevail. Now I want you to hear that wording again. When you preach the word, it will prevail. Not you will prevail, the gospel will prevail. And that nuance, I think, is really important to get into our heads because if we get it wrong, then what is a helpful biblical optimism kind of becomes an unbiblical, unfounded optimism, not located in the sovereign plan of God, but in our own deluded minds. Because the main character of the book of Acts is not us. 
It's not believers. Remember the key words if you kind of read through the book of Acts. You see these things coming. It's things that are increasing, things that are spreading, things that are multiplying. At various points it comes along. And those words are never applied to the believers. What are they applied to? Well, you see it there in verse 24 of today's passage. It's applied to the word of God. You see, we aren't offered that sort of prosperity. We're offered a different promise. It's the promise of Romans 8 verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? No, there is nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This verse doesn't say that we won't be bankrupted, that we won't be made homeless, that we won't be harmed, that we won't be killed. But what it says is that God's eternal love for us in Christ has been placed on us and it remains on us even and especially when those things happen. Nothing that we experience as Christians can take our inheritance from us. And I think understanding that helps us resolve what I think is the major confusion in today's passage. Because in verse 2, King Herod murders James. And in the rest of the chapter, God miraculously rescues another apostle, Peter. And it leaves us asking the question, I think, why one and not the other? Because if this talk was to go the way that I would think it would go, it should end with this kind of feel-good message of God's gracious deliverance of his people in all situations. Peter being snatched from the clutches of death as God responds to the prayers of the church. James somehow rescued as well. But there's our question, what happened to James? What do you do with him? Where was God when Herod seized him? And the simple answer is we don't know. But what we do know is that just like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he was martyred for the Lord, the Lord Jesus looked down upon James, his servant, as well. And nothing, not even the sword, could separate him from his saviour. And yet his death is significant for us because it teaches us not to overestimate our place in the story of salvation. Apostles, you can't replace them. And yet one died. You're not an apostle, you're replaceable. It tells you that you don't have as big a picture place in this story. One apostle dies, another is released. What is the outcome? Verse 24, the word increases, spreads, flourishes, multiplies. You are not the centre of this story. I am not the centre of this story. The word that proclaims Jesus as king over the world is. Now you have a part to play in that story. We all do, and that's the point to Jesus, both in your life and if the Lord Jesus calls you to it in your death. And so we need to remember that the reason we are persecuted is not because God has somehow failed us. It's because we stand for the glory of the Lord Jesus and people hate him. And Jesus throughout the Gospels reminded us that a servant is no better than their master. And so if they persecuted him, they'll persecute you as well. So the story, it's not about you. It's about the glory of the risen Lord Jesus and the word that proclaims him. And the thing to understand is, as we seek to not overestimate our place in the story, but realistically pinpoint our place in the story, it's to realise that we are servants of Jesus and heralds of that word, that we proclaim it with boldness, whatever cost to our person, because we know two things. Our life is hidden with Christ in heaven, and nothing will stop the word, not even persecution. So have a look at verse 20 with me for a moment. Look at some of the emphasis here. Look for the king language again. Herod's back, chilling around. He's been quarrelling with some people, Tyre and Sidon. They've joined together and they've sought an audience with him. Uh, apparently this fight has won. He's won it. 
Uh, and let's have a look at what happens. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. And they shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. But then look what happens. Verse 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And the point at the end of the passage is just quite simple. Whatever the kingdom, whatever the personage, no matter what the source of persecution, God is showing that it cannot stand before the Lord Jesus. So do not overestimate, underestimate the power of God, especially when it concerns the proclamation of his word. And don't overestimate your place in the story. Make a similar mistake perhaps to Herod and think that it's all about you. And instead of giving glory to God and putting glory in the risen Lord Jesus, we take that glory to ourselves and so incur his judgment. You see, our role, it's that of bold heralds, servants of the unstoppable word. And we can do that because of the confidence he gives us in the scriptures and in particular in a passage like Acts chapter 12. So let me challenge you as we finish by suggesting respectfully that perhaps we're too small-minded. So one of the things, actually the thing that Acts teaches us is the grandeur of the divine plan of God as it unfurls throughout human history. The unstoppable word, the word that announces that Jesus is saviour, king and judge, that begins in Jerusalem, that spreads to the surrounding countryside of Judea, went north to Samaria, then like a dam bursting, spread to the Gentile world, to the ends of the earth, to places like Perth at UWA. It's a worldwide movement of incomparable power. And whatever comes against it, opposition from authority, hard hearts, racism, calamity, persecution, nothing stops it. And God invites you as one of his saved to join that campaign with confidence, with boldness, selling your lives cheaply, accepting the risk, holding on to what God gives us so that we can spread it to the people that we come across, whether it's here at university, whether it's out there in the workforce, whether it's on your neighbourhood street, whether it's you taking it to another country who needs to hear it more, where you don't have three or four qualified ministers, pastors in the room, but you have zero for thousands upon thousands of people. So let me ask you then, will you let fear stop you from that great cause that God calls you to? Because you don't need to. The power of God, the unstoppable force of his gospel, it frees us to be confident. It frees us to be joyful. It frees us to accept the risk, face the hurt, bear the shame. It allows us to take what God gave us and bring it to other people, whether we're at home, whether it's abroad, whether it's in the perfect conditions for evangelism and somebody just kind of comes up to you and says, tell me, what must I do to be saved? Or whether it's in amongst a, a hostile tutorial room where you just think nobody's going to listen to you. Because even then, especially then, in those obstacles, the word can and will increase and grow. So my question for you is, will you play your part in God's story?